0: Well, as you know, we've been, uh, we started a new series here, the Apostles' Creed, and we're actually on uh, week four here. And uh, so the phrase that we're looking at today, in case you're not overly familiar with the creed or you want to see where we are, it is printed for you on the back, and we're just kind of taking a phrase at a time. And the phrase that we're looking at today is suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So with that in mind, I want to just ask you a question. I sometimes wonder what Christianity looks like to those who are outside of the faith, for those who are not believers. Do you ever think about that? What do we look like? Because I think we probably look weird, a little bit weird, if I'm honest with you. Uh, I think as unbelievers might look upon us and hear our teaching, hear our songs, observe our attitudes, and try to understand some of our values and practices. I I think we probably look strange to them at times. Uh, And one of those things that, as I imagine from the outside, that could stand out as an oddity is what seems like a fixation or an obsession with death and morbidity. Right? Especially in our worship services, if you think about it. We sing, we gather together to sing every week about a person's death. That's strange. We don't even like to mention death when we speak to each other, you know, throughout the week. We try to avoid that topic with euphemisms, right? Somebody passed on uh, or somebody passed away or the worst uh, euphemism of all, of course, is that someone expired like they're a bad gallon of milk or something, When I'm dead, just say Eric's dead, okay? Don't skirt the issue. I'm fine. Don't say he expired, please. So we sing about a person's death every week. That's weird. Not only do we sing about uh, death every week, we even commemorate it with a little drama, so to speak. We pass out a piece of bread and a cup filled with juice. The bread is to signify the broken body of Christ and the cup to signify his blood. We pass it out so everybody has a set and then we don't just look upon it and imagine and behold it. We eat it. We take it into ourselves. I think that would look weird, right? You with me so far? But it goes on. We also dramatize his death with the ceremony known as baptism which is a picture of what Christ has done for us and a symbol of the spiritual work that has already taken place we lower somebody into the water we dunk them which looks like we're trying to kill them and then we pull them up and of course this symbolizes one's identification with Christ and his death burial and resurrection and then if that weren't enough if that weren't enough we even adorn our necks sometimes our skin our homes, our houses of worship, with the cross, the instrument that was used in the death of Christ. So let me sort of flip the script a little bit and to kind of put this in perspective. Imagine being invited to a public meeting somewhere here in town where a bunch of people gathered together and all sitting in neat uh, orderly rows they all wore a little golden electric chair around their neck. And uh, they sang songs about the death of their founder. Let's say his name was Robert from Cleveland. The people all identified themselves as Robertians, even though their founder was dead. Uh, And they decorated the walls of their meeting place with guillotines and sporadically around their homes even had nooses hanging in prominent places. So this would be weird. Can we agree? You would feel a little awkward. And yet this is how we practice as Christians. And and, and I guess what I want to bring to your attention is that in many ways, the cross has become so ornate and so beautiful for Christians that sometimes I think we have forgotten its gruesomeness. We have forgotten what it once was. Uh, The cross, of course, was an ugly cruel instrument of death like an electric chair like a guillotine like a noose in that it brought death but different in one very significant way those instruments of death are all meant to bring it about quickly the cross was meant to prolong it and accentuate the suffering as much as possible in fact it was such a terrible way to die that the romans would not even use it upon a roman citizen They were precluded from it. Too barbaric. We don't do that to first class citizens. That was their viewpoint. And yet, here at the center of the Apostles' Creed, or the crux of the Creed, if you will, we find the cross, we find the death, and the burial of Jesus all explicitly mentioned. And we might ask ourselves the question why? Why are some of these details mentioned here? The whole point of this section in the creed is to state matter-of-factly that Jesus really died. And it really happened. It happened at this particular point in history. Jesus was truly dead. And he was actually buried. That's our, our our fixation this morning. The death of Christ really happened. It was historic. It was barbaric. But as we Christians know, for us who believe in him, it has become beautiful, right? It has become beautiful. Uh, The Apostles' Creed, I think, really wonderfully follows the arc of the revelation of God in the scripture. It follows sort of that narrative story, the father and his creation. Then it steps down from there through Jesus and his incarnation. And this week it steps again into his suffering, his death, and all the way down into The grave. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So the first point of our message today, and you have some notes in your handout to help you follow along. I didn't give you any fill in the blanks this week. It's too hot to fill in the blank. Just thinking of you. Okay, thinking of you. <clears throat> Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let me ask you this question. When you die, what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to be remembered for? I'll take you through, through my life a little bit. Personally, I would love to be remembered as a pastor who loved the church he was called to shepherd. Uh, who hopefully shepherded with some skill and who preached faithfully the word of God in season and out of season. I would love to be remembered for that. Uh, I would love to be remembered as um, a faithful husband um, who loved his wife and cared for her well. Uh, I've already have it from Amy on, on, on her good word that if I die, she's decided she's not gonna remarry. And I, I respond to that and say, I've ruined you for all men, huh? And she says, yes, you have. And I think we mean different things by that. Do you know what I mean? Yes, you have. I don't think I want to know anymore on that (laughs) one. I want to be remembered as a caring father who knew his kids, who knew them, and who engaged them in their life and their dreams and their fears and launched them into the world out of our home. (laughs) I want to be remembered for that. And I want to be remembered for beautiful hair and athletic prowess and uh, other things, which probably won't happen. But, but think about Pilate. What is Pilate remembered for? He's only remembered for two things, and both of them bad. Uh, the first is what J.I. Packer and I don't. If you don't know who J.I. Packer is. This man is basically, the, was the standard for orthodoxy for his lifetime, pretty much. He's written over 165 books. I'm on chapter one of my dissertation. He wrote 165 books. And he's the guy who's written on the back who basically says, yeah, this is a good book, and I don't know how many, hundreds, hundreds. He was sort of the standard by which you could deem, is this a good book or not? Uh, I actually met J.I. Packer one time. I was at Regent College taking a class, and I passed him in the hallway. <sighs> it was like walking past an angel or something. And I was, <laughs> I, was I really wanted to get a selfie with him. <laughs> but J.I. is old. He was old then. And I thought better of it. Maybe I'll just let this moment go. But he says, uh, and here's a picture of J.I. Packer. Oh, that's not the picture of J.I. Packer. I don't know if we have it. There it is. J.I. is old. And the reason I show you this picture is because I want that face in your mind when you hear these words. He says poetically, referring to Pilate, who practiced perhaps the goofiest gesture all time. I would love to see that man, sorry, that man, say the word goofy in a (laughs) theological discussion about Pilate. Pilate. What is he known for? For one of the things he's known for is perhaps the goofiest gesture performed all times. What is this gesture? Washing his hands. Even, even the secular world uses this phrase not knowing they're referencing scripture. It's what he's known for. It's what he's known for. Matthew 27, 19. Doug, you can, uh, we don't need to look at J.I. that long. Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. And Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Thanks a lot. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So this is one of the things he's known for, publicly washing his hands, declaring himself innocent of the blood of Jesus, all the while giving the green light for his execution. But don't worry, he washed his hands. Right? Pilate tried to absolve himself of responsibility here, and of course that gesture is empty He still gave the order. It was the order that mattered. And so Packer is exactly right when he calls this gesture goofy. We know that he is responsible. We know it was his order that placed him there. But here's the other thing. It was not merely the order of Pilate that pinned Jesus to the cross. We have to remember that we also are responsible. As the hymn says, it was my sin That held him there. Jesus wasn't fixed to the cross purely because of Pilate. He was fixed to the cross because of you and me. Our sin held him there. Well, that's the first thing uh, that Pilate is known for washing his hands, trying to absolve himself of, of the death of Christ. The second thing, of course, that he's known for is he's the one who gave the order. And they were followed. He gave the order to have Jesus crucified. That's what his name is fixed to in all of history. That's incredible. You know how you can have an encounter with somebody and they can sort of ruin a name for you? You know what I mean? We don't find too many people named Pilate. Not too many Adolphs, not too many Cains. They've kind of ruined it you know, for all, all time. That is what his name is fixed to. Interestingly enough, in the Apostles' Creed, there's only three names mentioned: the name of Jesus, his mother Mary, and his executioner Pilate. So why does the creed do that? Just a bit of, you know, religious retribution? We'll get you back, Pilate. And I would just say, no, it's not. But in as much as naming the mother of Jesus Mary to anchor his birth into real time and space in real history, so naming his executioner roots his death in real time and space, in real history. Alistair McGrath, the theologian and historian, has said this, those who passed down the creed to us were wise to include the name Pontius Pilate because it anchors the crucifixion as an actual event in history. Otherwise, if we didn't have this in the Creed or didn't have it in the Scriptures as we do, where the individual was named, and we could find exactly where that was and the timing of their rule, so we would see it on the the time of history here, it would just sound like legend or myth or fiction. It would sound a little bit like the beginning of Star Wars, right? A long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away, Star Wars. Uh, I want to pick on this a little bit. Don't worry here. I'm a Star Wars fan, so this is friendly banter, okay? Um, There's a little problem with Star Wars. Have you ever noticed this? It's a long time ago, so seemingly ancient, and yet they have technology that we don't have. Is it old or is it new? You know, which is it? We're flying around in jets, but we're living in mud huts. We dress like we're in biblical times, but we fly in space. It's a little, there's a little discontinuity. But it's okay because it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So we can shrug. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Discontinuity, it's somewhere else. So the scriptures will not have any of that. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate under his reign at that time, under his command, in that place. Even those who do not yet trust in Christ have to acknowledge that he was a real person. He lived under at this time and he died under this man's command. It really happened. Secondly, crucified. Excuse me. You guys are glad you're in first service. Second service is going to be rough. that Christ was crucified actually has apologetic value it's not just a matter of fact throw away a line of the means of his death it's significant that Jesus was crucified shows the contempt that Jews had for him so right there's there's many ways of putting a man to death many ways that the Jews had available to them they could have stoned someone they could have had him flogged to death they could have Hit him with one big rock over the head. They could, right? There's many, many ways to take a life. Many ways that they could have done it which would have been faster and more humane. But they cried out for crucifixion. They wanted the worst. It showed their contempt for him. So why do they call out for this nuclear option, so to speak? The matter of fact is this. Jesus made himself out to be God. He, he, He poked the bear. He angered them at the most sensitive point. In the mind of the Jewish community, Jesus was not just an ordinary criminal, a thug, or a thief, or something like this. He was much worse than that. This is an important detail. Because some people will say, when you you ask them about Jesus, they'll say something like this, You know, he never actually claimed to be God. And if that is said, you have to go, well, why then did the Jews ask for crucifixion to kill him, the worst means of death possible? And we see here their contempt for him. Why? Because they saw him as a blasphemer, one who made himself out to be God, equal with God, and therefore desecrated the Father. And so they had to, in their fierce anger and outrage, cry out, crucify him. It is a point of apologetic value showing who the Jews understood Jesus claiming himself to be. That's why they wanted this death. They didn't want him to die quickly and efficiently, quietly over here. They wanted it to be horrible. They wanted it to be public. They wanted it to linger. They wanted to make him pay. So why do I underscore that? Because again, as I brought out to you last week, those who do not yet believe in Jesus as their Savior at least have to acknowledge that he was an historic figure, as just as a matter of intellectual honesty. He was an historic figure who lived under this man's rule and died under this man's command by this particular method. So uh, then you're left with the question, right? If you ask, who, uh, who do you say that Jesus was? Some might say, well, he was, um, he was a good moral teacher. And many of you will have heard this uh, sort of argument that C.S. Lewis made famous in his book, Mere Christianity. It's called Lord, Liar, or Lunatic, right? Where he basically outlines, you know, there's only three logical answers to this question. The first is this, well, he was a lunatic. He's crazy as a bat. He thought he was God. He wasn't. He thought he was God. Now we have to look at that and say, that's a possible answer. Is it the best answer? Where does the evidence lie? And we can look at the life of Jesus, the quality of it. We can look at the teaching of Jesus. Let me make this statement. He is the greatest and most influential teacher in the history of mankind. We can look at the followership of Jesus. Has more followers in history than any person ever. Does all of that smack of a lunatic? I'm going to an easy no on that one. It's a possible answer. Is it the best answer? <clears throat> or secondly, he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God. He knew it. And he just pretended and he just had some good gimmicks worked out, some trickeries, some miracles, and the greatest hoax ever perpetrated, he fooled everyone. His disciples were so fooled that they went on even to give their lives for what they believed. It's possible, it's possible. Does it make sense? No. People don't give their lives for what they don't believe in. The hoax does not make sense. Again, it doesn't deal with the quality of his life and his teachings and his impact. Or thirdly, he's the Lord. He was who he says he was. God in the flesh, laying down his life sacrificially to pay for the sins of mankind in order to reconcile them to the Father. So these are the only valid options. And you have to ask yourself, Well, which has the most evidence going for it? And here's the thing. There is this pesky bit about the resurrection that really seems to cinch it. And uh, the interesting thing here, too, about this angry mob in Jerusalem in AD 33 who cries out, crucify him, a few weeks later, have a very different cry. They respond to the sermon of, of Peter in Acts 2. Peter declares, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom our Lord, our God, will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people present, many of which who would have been in the first crowd crying out for his death are in the second crowd crying out in repentance, save us. They changed their mind because of the evidence of the resurrection. The story of God uh, to me uh, reminds me uh, of, a, of a favorite um, sort of fictional writer uh, at times. Uh, do you guys remember going back to high school now, literature class? Do you remember O. Henry? Do you remember the O. Henry stories? One in particular, my favorite, uh, called Gift of the Magi. Do you know this one? It looks, you're all nodding, so I'm going to assume that you've read it. If you haven't, I'm going to ruin it for you right now. you've had your chance. so. <clears throat> it's this lovely story about essentially this, this uh, couple in love. And the fella has this beautiful gold watch. But he has to carry it around. has no chain to secure it uh, to himself. And, and so it's beautiful, it's valuable, but it's vulnerable. And he has this lovely bride, and she has beautiful, long, flowing hair. And um, it's been a while since I've read it, but I'm not sure if her hair is just wild or unkempt or whatever, but there are some particular combs that he sees that he knows those will be beautiful in her hair. And he wants to get them for her and adorn uh, her hair with them. So Christmas is coming. They have this mindset of these of this gift. and what ends up happening, of course, is, is sort of comedic. And uh, he goes and he buys those combs for her hair, excited to give them to her. problem is, in order to purchase it, he sells his watch. So she and then she, of course, gets these combs and has a terrible look on her face. Why? Because in order to purchase the watch chain for his pocket watch. She has cut and sold her hair. It's a beautiful story. And there's this sort of funny circularity to it. The two are left holding these trinkets, which no longer have the value they were intended to have. And there's a bit of debate as to what should we take away from this. They were foolish and overpurchasing, or did they find out in these acts of sacrifice how much they really loved each other and therefore had the greatest gift? which is the implication here. The story of God reminds me of sort of O. Henry's poetic writing in some of these ways. Because we end up being the actors who killed the Son of God by our sin. But we end up receiving the impl- implication and the, the power of what his death achieved, our own forgiveness. There's this wonderfully, wonderful mystery in the midst of all of this. The Apostle Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So, the wonderful thing about the cross is this we are not left simply holding trinkets that have no value, but we are left having received the most valuable thing, the forgiveness of our sins, not simply as a statement of, oh, I don't care, but forgiveness that is anchored in the payment of the cross. Our sins were not overlooked, they were paid for. Our forgiveness is substantive. And we're reminded of grace upon grace that we have received from our God. Thirdly here, dead and buried. If there's no burial, there's no guarantee Jesus was dead. If Jesus is not truly dead then his, there was no sacrificial death. There was no propitiation. There was no payment rendered unto God and no victorious resurrection. If there's no resurrection, this is starting to sound like if you give a mouse a cookie, right? If there's no resurrection, the Apostle Paul says, we're still in our sins. The resurrection justifies Jesus to us as God's very son so that he can reconcile us to the Father. The death and burial of Jesus are essential to the atonement for sin. Now, the only thing that could be worse for Pilate and for the religious leaders uh, than the problem that Jesus posed with his popularity and kind of the way that he uh, opposed them, the only thing that could be worse, I haven't clicked the button, sorry, would be actually if he did raise from the dead. If this dead man were somehow to reappear undead, That would be a problem. And they spot this, Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people, There's been a, he's raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. And once again here, I find so beautiful all of the ways that mankind really strives to oppose God, particularly in the incarnation and the ministry of Christ, they just end up unwittingly accomplishing the very purposes of God because of God's manifold wisdom. One of the most, um, I think, beautiful things about the Scriptures is the consistent pattern of prediction and fulfillment. Prediction and fulfillment. Um, And I think it's one of the finest proofs for the reliability of the Christian claims. And we see that here in Jesus' crucifixion, uh, burial, and even in the secure tomb. Uh, A number of years ago, my oldest son, uh, Aidan, cornered me in the kitchen with one of his many, many questions. That kid had a lot of questions. And he asked me one day, Dad, how do we know that Jesus is God and that the Bible is true? I was like, okay, those are good questions. Why do we wanna, how do we want to go at this? All right. I think he was like nine or 10 at the time. So I'm kind of scratching my head, and I said, well, open up your Bible. And he, and he balked. He said, open up your Bible to Isaiah 53. He's like, but dad, I want to know, how, do I, how can I be sure that this is true? So his qu- question, what he was basically saying is, I'm looking for external evidence, right? I want proof from outside. And that's perfectly valid. It's also valid to find internal evidence, proof from inside. Is something internally consistent? And I'm going to tell you that is one of the most wonderful things about the Christian faith is its internal continuity. It coheres with itself. It shows itself to be one big plan of God from beginning to end. In Isaiah 53, we see this maybe more clearly than anywhere in the scripture The iniquity of us all. And when we stop and realize that these these passages, and the whole chapter has even more, when we look at these passages and realize that this was written 700 years prior to Christ's crucifixion, and we see the way these cohere, you cannot help, I don't know how, the fair-minded investigator of Christianity cannot come away with this idea that God planned this And God performed this. Jesus is God's Messiah, sent to pay for the sins of the world. Babe Ruth is very famous for taking his bat and pointing to the stands and calling his shot and then doing it. Our God is more famous for hundreds of years prior, thousands of years prior, calling his shot and then performing it. Not only did he do that with Isaiah, but all the way back, In Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, what we call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, when God said to the deceiver, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. He'll strike his heel. A mortal wound was given to Christ, but he crushed the head of the serpent. So, Our point this morning, Jesus really died in this time, in this place, in this manner. And yet, for those of us who understand it was the Lord's will all along, it has become beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the poetic beauty of this story. But more importantly than its poetry. We thank you for the practicality of it. That the life, the death, and the burial of Christ all serve as a part of what you have accomplished through him on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins held him there. But because he didn't stay there, our sins were crucified in him. And punished and done away with forever. And we rejoice in that. Thank you for the beauty of the cross. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.